Welcome to ThoughtCast. I'm Jenny Atia. Remember when Condoleezza Rice warned us that we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud? When the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, the world got a good long look at what the Bush White House called preventive war. A few years later, we learned about the 1% doctrine, Vice President Cheney's post-9-11 formula for U.S. military intervention. According to author Ron Suskind, if there's a 1% chance that terrorists can get hold of a weapon of mass destruction, the U.S. must act as if it's a certainty. That's Cheney's view. But what is our view? What should be the rules regarding a preemptive strike or preventive war? When is it appropriate and when is it a crime? Everything's a matter of degree. The essence of a civilized society is line drawing. Where you draw the lines. And that's exactly what we don't have in jurisprudence. We haven't decided where to draw the lines. That's the attorney, author, blogger, and Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz talking. In his new book called Preemption, A Knife That Cuts Both Ways, he asks us to consider a new set of laws governing preemptive action, laws which would prohibit some acts and permit others. Alan Dershowitz, welcome to ThoughtCast. Thank you so much for having me on this wonderful, wonderful show. You're welcome. Now what we're talking about here is a set of practices like targeted assassinations, the detention and possible torture of terror suspects, preemptive strikes perhaps on a, a hostile country's nuclear plants. And these activities are supposed to be illegal, but countries do go ahead and do them anyway. The U.S. is one of those countries, isn't it? The United States engaged, really for the first time in our history, in a full-blown preventive war in Iraq. We had previously thought about taking preventive or preemptive actions and come close to it in the Cuban Missile Crisis. There had been some who had argued for a preventive attack on the Soviet nuclear capacity back in the 1940s and cooler minds prevailed. But Iraq is the first instance of a full-blown preventive war, and I think most analysts would say uh, an example of a failed use of that doctrine. In your book, Alan, you don't spell out exactly what you think these new laws mm -hmm. should say, but it's pretty clear that you want them watered down a bit. You write that, quote, while it may be necessary for democracies to fight terrorists with one hand tied behind their backs, it is neither necessary nor desirable for a democracy to fight with two hands tied mm -hmm. behind its back, especially when the ropes that bind the second hand are anachronistic laws that can be changed without compromising legitimate human rights. You've written a lot about torture, Alan. What do you think about those laws? Are they anachronistic? They're not anachronistic so much as they're utterly useless. Um, Every country uh, says uh, it's wrong to torture. Every country has signed on to anti-torture treaties. And every country faced with terrorism tortures, has tortured, and will torture. Uh, Great Britain did it, of course, during the Irish uh, Northern Ireland problem. The French did it um, in Algeria. England did it in Kenya. The Russians do it routinely. The Egyptians do it routinely. The Jordanians, the Philippines. So how can it be illegal? There are many things that are illegal. <laughs> Adultery used to be <laughs> illegal, and it was very widespread. Uh, things mean, are illegal. How, why do we have these laws? Well, because we aspire to a time when torture will never be used. And I have a different suggestion. Instead of being hypocritical and everybody proclaiming never, never, never torture, never will use it, um, I'm suggesting the following. Though I'm against torture, and I wish we never had to use it, I believe it's going on. And therefore, I propose 
that before torture or even any rough interrogation can ever be used, the president personally has to sign a torture warrant which would be approved by the Chief Justice of the United States. That would make it almost impossible for any democracy ever to justify torture. We could never have gotten a president to sign a torture warrant for Abu Ghraib, which were low-level detainees who had no information, and we used methods that no American president would approve, sexual humiliation, etc. So my proposal is designed to pragmatically eliminate or at least reduce to an absolute minimum the amount of torture in contrast to the present situation where everybody is happy, we outlaw torture, and it just goes on its merry way underneath the radar screen. But I think you want to make a distinction, don't you, between certain acts that are currently labeled as torture but are really, you think, acceptable under the circumstances and acts which really are the true genuine article. Well, I think we have to make distinctions all the time. There's a difference between torturing somebody to death the way Stalin and Hitler did and uh, what uh, Britain did or Israel did or other countries did, use very, very rough interrogation methods, shaking people, putting blindfolds on them, exposing them to hot and cold, but not endangering their lives. I would actually like to broaden the definition of torture to include all of these things and to include waterboarding, which the United States now does, putting somebody on a board and lowering his head into the water and saying that none of these things should ever be permitted unless we are prepared to have the president sign a torture warrant. The analogy I make is to an airplane loaded with civilians heading toward the Empire State Building, and it has 15 minutes before it's going to crash and kill 10,000 people. Somebody has to make the decision to shoot down that airplane. It should be the president, not some low-ranking official on the ground. In a democracy, you need accountability for the worst things, for the most extreme things, and that's been my very controversial proposal regarding torture. As you know, you've written that these laws can be changed without compromising legitimate human mm -hmm, rights. Mm -hmm. You don't see this as compromising legitimate human rights? If in fact the end result is less torture, we are in fact promoting, not compromising human rights. It doesn't promote human rights simply to say, don't torture, and then turn a blind eye to the actual torture that goes on. Alan, I know that you request and like tough questions. Yes. So I've done my best with one. Please. You're well known as a strong supporter of Israel. Right. And a cynic might think that your desire to change these rules regarding torture and other preemptive tactics is actually a public relations move. It could be seen as a way to give the U.S. and Israel legal and diplomatic cover for some of the acts that other countries find so objectionable. It's an excellent question. Um, and if the proposals that I were making um, were to help a tyrannical regime, a, a regime that was doing all the wrong things, it seems to me one could easily make that criticism that I started from trying to defend Israel and moved backward toward the procedures that I'm suggesting or the United States. That just isn't the case. And also, I'm very critical of many things Israel does. I'm very critical, for example, of its house destruction policy, and I've been critical of that for a long time. I'm very critical of the settlement policy in Israel. I don't think that there should have been civilian settlements in the West Bank. I'm very critical of some of its failures uh, in respect to building up the Palestinian Authority after the death of Yasser Arafat. So I'm perfectly willing to criticize Israel, and I'm certainly willing to criticize the United States. I'm very critical of the Bush administration. I was against the war in Iraq, though for me it was a close question. I was one of those people who fell for the intelligence. I believe there were weapons of mass destruction. And I still was 51-49 against the war in Iraq because of the law of unintended consequences, because I thought it would divert attention away from Iran, which posed a more serious threat. 
And because I'd rather face an enemy who fears death than an enemy who welcomes death. So I'd rather face a secular enemy than a religious fundamentalist enemy. You're listening to ThoughtCast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with the Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz about his new book called Preemption, The Knife That Cuts Both Ways. Alan Dershowitz, you have a charming parable from the Bible which you tell in your book, Preemption. Would you mind repeating it about the conversation God has about numbers? It's my favorite story from the Bible, and it involves my favorite character from the Bible, Abraham, after whom I'm named. My Hebrew name is Avraham, which is the Hebrew for Abraham. Abraham was, of course, the world's first recorded lawyer, and he had a heck of a client, uh, the sinners of Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, the two great evil cities of the book of Genesis. And it wasn't as if he had to defend them only against charges of consensual homosexuality. That would be easy even for a biblical character, but these were predatory rapists, according to at least the tradition, and Abraham had to defend them. And he argues with God, and he says, God, what if, what if there are 50 innocent people among the many who are guilty? And God says, hmm, that's a good argument. If there are 50, I will spare the entire city. And Abraham, the great lawyer, figures he has him on principle. Now let's start arguing over numbers. What if it's 45? What if it's 40? What if it's 30? What if it's 20? But he stops at 10, and that's critical. And for me, that shows two things. First of all, this is the first example of rights being a matter of degree. And it's also the first example of an attempt to quantify morality. Killing five or six innocent people to save a whole city might be legitimate, but killing 15 or 20 might not be legitimate. And my interpretation of the story is God was saying to Abraham, look, you can't ever, ever have a perfect system Strive for a system that's as good as possible. Strive for a system in which, if there are too many innocent people, reconsider and reevaluate the system. But if occasionally there might be an innocent person, that's the limitations of humanity. And you're human and you will make mistakes. Just err on the side of making mistakes, freeing the guilty rather than convicting the innocent. Alan Dershowitz, with that in mind, that mistakes are made, critics have been pointing out their concern that your desire to change and mm -hmm. think through the laws of preemption really opened the door to dictatorships benefiting from these changes in the law as well. I mean, do we want them pulling out Dershowitz's new international laws to defend their actions? It would make no difference. Uh, Tyrants and dictators are going to do what they're going to do anyway. The only countries that comply by the, with the rule of law are democracies. And so, uh, yes, uh, anything you do, any rule you make will be abused by tyrants. Remember when the Soviet Union under Stalin was executing people, they were always invoking the rule of law. They were invoking American principles. At Nuremberg, the Nazis uh, defended themselves based on American laws. There's always going to be abuse of law. To me, the issue is not what rules will regulate tyrants, they're going to be lawless. The issue for me is what rules should regulate democracies. And uh, we make mistakes on both sides. If we preempt and we shouldn't have preempted, that's a serious mistake. But failing to preempt can be a very serious mistake. If Israel had not taken out the Iraqi nuclear reactor, Iraq would today be in Kuwait. Saddam Hussein would still be in power. That would be the most powerful regime in the Middle East and the world would be a very, very different place. Sometimes prevention is absolutely necessary. 
Alan, let's take a look at some specifics. On July 12th, Hezbollah crossed the border into northern Israel, kidnapped two soldiers and killed several others. Israel then responded, at first with an intensive bombing campaign, but Hezbollah still managed to fire around 100 rockets a day into northern Israel. Can the doctrine of preemption shed any light on this? Israel didn't have to use preemption because they were attacked even under the UN Charter and even Kofi Annan acknowledged Israel had a right of self-defense. Uh, the question is proportionality. One of the most difficult issues intellectually, legally, and morally is proportionality to what? Proportionality to what happened in the past or proportionality to the threat of the future? And international law looks at proportionality in terms of the threat of the future. And the threat that Hezbollah posed against Israel was 10,000 rockets being rained down on its civilians. The two soldiers were the trigger, but it would be disproportionate to attack the infrastructure of Hezbollah if Hezbollah said, oh, we just killed two soldiers, that's all we're going to do, here they are back. What happened there was Hezbollah captured two soldiers, killed more, crossed over, and continued its reign of rockets. Remember, the rockets didn't start on that day. Rockets had hit northern Israel for years preceding that time. And so Israel correctly perceived that if it was going to go in and try to rescue its soldiers, which it was entitled to do, the response would be a rain of rockets. And so it was entitled to prevent that from happening as well. So that's the serious intellectual issue. Proportional to what? Alan Dershowitz, in terms of who's doing the preempting, I did read that this counterattack by Israel actually had been planned over a year earlier. So maybe it was really more premeditated and they were perhaps responding to the secret buildup by Hezbollah of, of their uh, artillery. That's always going to be the case. Any decent democracy, the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, Israel, always have contingency plans. If you're attacked, you don't just attack back. You attack and make sure that the counterattack is neutralized. So there's always going to be a long-term plan. And a cynic can say, ah, they use the soldiers as an excuse for an attack that they were ready to uh, use. That's not the case. They knew that by taking proportional action to get their soldiers back, that Hezbollah would be raining massive rockets on them, and they had to take action designed to prevent Hezbollah from taking that action. What would have been proportional well, to I just the two soldiers? It's hard to imagine a situation where anybody would just come in and take two soldiers uh, without having rockets behind them. Uh, if there were no rockets, proportional would have been to block the escape routes, to try to retrieve the soldiers, perhaps to capture some Hezbollah militants to exchange for the soldiers, uh, but certainly not destroying the rockets. But because Hezbollah had rockets, which they had threatened to use, it was entirely proportional to try to knock out their capacity to do it. Alan Dershowitz, you've written that since terrorists don't fear death, Mm -hmm. and have no home address, so to speak, that they can't be deterred by the usual methods, which are basically punishment after the fact. And you argue that the only recourse left against terrorists is preemption. Could Israel have preempted this war? First of all, terrorists can be deterred, but not through democratic means. Uh, Stalin and Hitler deterred terrorism. They killed the family members. Um, even it is alleged more recently when uh, Hezbollah captured some American uh, diplomats 
and some, a Russian diplomat, no one can confirm this, but the story has been circulating for years, that the KGB, the Russian intelligence, came in and murdered the families of the Hezbollah uh, kidnappers, and nobody was kidnapped again after that by uh, Hezbollah, who belonged to the Soviet Union. So it would be possible, theoretically, to deter suicide bombers, but no democracy will ever engage in the kind of actions that would be necessary to do it. So the next question is, what's an appropriate preventive action? Yes, Israel could have taken preventive action. It could have, in the middle of the night, with no warning, gone in and destroyed the Hezbollah rockets. By the way, if Israel were going to attack Iran for their nuclear reactor, I think they would have first neutralized Hezbollah's rockets before they did it, or simultaneously, because they knew that an attack in Iran would stimulate the rockets from Hezbollah. So sometimes when you're going to take one preemptive action, you have to take multiple preemptive actions to preempt what you are inciting in some ways by your other preemptive action. It's very complicated. Not to get too bogged down in tactics, but how could the Israelis in the middle of the night actually go and locate all these hidden bombs? It'd be very difficult. Uh, you'd need massive intelligence on the ground. Uh, one of the reasons why Israel did not have particularly good intelligence in southern Lebanon is because they had left. And many of the people who they had been collaborating with in the past, southern Lebanese Christians, had been arrested by Hezbollah or thrown out of the area. So Israel did not have good intelligence on the ground. Um, you'll notice there's much more terrorism from southern Lebanon and from Gaza against Israel and from the West Bank. Why? Because Israel engages in preemptive actions in the West Bank because of its occupation. Put another way, occupation doesn't cause terrorism. That's easily proved. Many countries that have been occupied have not had terrorism, Tibet and other countries. But terrorism causes occupation. And that is, one of the reasons Israel occupied Lebanon was to prevent terrorism. The reason it remains in the West Bank is to prevent terrorism. It would have left Gaza much earlier. So there's much less terrorism in the West Bank than there is in the Gaza and in Hezbollah. And one of the reasons is because Israel has an extraordinary intelligence presence on the West Bank at great cost because it creates all kinds of tensions between Palestinians and Israelis and the checkpoints and all the difficulties that any occupation uh, entails. You're listening to ThoughtCast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia, and I'm talking with the Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz about his new book called Preemption, The Knife That Cuts Both Ways. Alan Dershowitz, speaking of what other options Israel might have had other than respond to the rockets, and speaking of blogs as well, on the Huffington Post, which is a blog mm -hmm. where you write, <coughs> mm -hmm. you challenged your readers to come up with, quote, a better alternative mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Israel than to try to destroy Hezbollah's rockets, even at the cost of some civilian casualties, unquote. And I am assuming you think nobody's been able to come up with a better idea. Well, people have come up with ideas. Uh, people have said, do nothing, be Gandhi, die. Uh, it's not worth living if you have to kill civilians. I've heard those ideas, but no democracy could ever survive. Remember, Gandhi didn't live in a democracy. Gandhi made his own decisions. Uh, Mandela certainly didn't sit back passively and allow his people to die. He engaged in counter-terrorist actions um, and any other democracy is going to respond by trying to prevent terrorists from killing its own civilians. That's just a law of human nature. I think the concern is that by responding, that then elicits more rockets mm -hmm. and a cycle which ends up killing more Israelis and Lebanese civilians. Well, that, if that were true, it would be stupid. And um, 
people don't get elected, mostly if they do stupid things, which end up killing more of their own people. Obviously, the citizens of Israel think differently, and they think that by responding to rocket attacks and trying to destroy the rockets, fewer Israeli civilians will be killed. Now, the hard moral question is, is a democracy entitled to prefer its own civilians over the civilians of an enemy country, particularly if some of those civilians are collaborators? Now, not all the civilians are collaborators, obviously children and elderly and people who can't leave are not collaborators. But does a democracy have the right to say, we prefer the lives of our citizens over the lives of your citizens? Now, that's a hard moral question. The United States answered that yes at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The British answered it yes in Dresden. The French answered it yes repeatedly throughout their history. And Israel has answered it yes by taking what it believes are proportional actions. Reasonable people could disagree about whether it's proportional or not, and that's a fair debate as long as it's put in context of what other countries have done over time. Alan, we're talking about unintended consequences mm -hmm. of action in wartime. I had mentioned that the more Israel responds, the more Israelis die. Another unintended consequence is the backfiring in terms of public relations for Israel. I think there's a big difference between public relations and whether, in fact, more Israelis die. I don't think more Israelis die. I think Israel takes action designed to protect its citizens, and in fact, fewer Israelis die. Maybe in the short term, more die, but in the long term, fewer die. Um, public relations is very different. Israel loses the war of public relations all the time. By the way, so does the United States in general, and it's because Many in the world hate democracies, and because, let's face facts about Israel, Israel is the Jewish nation. It's the Jew among nations. And as the Jew among nations, it's treated like the Jews have been treated throughout history, and a double standard is applied. Uh, there is no way of explaining the disproportionate attacks on Israel at the United Nations other than as the result of bigotry. Alan Dershowitz, you have written recently that Quote, the Arab world, the Islamic world, and the rest of the Israel haters have now rallied behind Hezbollah. Hatred of Israel has even managed to heal the millennium-long divisions between Shias and Sunnis. This doesn't sound like it's going in the right direction. Oh, it's not going in the right direction in terms of public relations. It's not going in the right direction in terms of Arab unity. But in my view, and I certainly have heard this from many, many experts, that in the Arab world, the best way to destroy a terrorist organization is to defeat it. Peace gestures haven't worked. Land for peace has produced only land for terrorism and land for rockets. The alternatives are not good ones. And the military alternative should always be the last resort. But I think Israel has exhausted other options. It has tried to make peace. It has tried to create a two-state solution. It has tried unilateral withdrawal. It has tried bilateral agreements. Nothing has worked, and the reason it hasn't worked is because Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran are dedicated to the ultimate destruction of Israel. No secret, they say it. It's in their charter. How do you negotiate with a country that says our negotiating position is you shouldn't exist? Now, this hatred of Israel is not just public relations. This is a serious it's existential. weapon. Oh, of course. Because when I asked you that question, when I was reading your quote to you about how the Arabs have rallied behind Hezbollah, Caius said, well, that's public relations. That's right. But it's not just public relations. It's an emotion and it's an ideology that is much more powerful than 3,000 rockets. 
it is as powerful as Nazism was powerful in the 1930s. That was powerful. The desire to destroy the Jews was powerful, and it succeeded. The European Jewish community was destroyed. Six million were killed. Um, and that doesn't mean the United States' effort to destroy Nazism was a failure. It succeeded in the end. And Germany became a democracy, and Austria became a democracy. Uh, and so I think efforts have to be made diplomatically, and if the diplomatic efforts fail, militarily, to destroy those who would destroy Israel. Israel cannot sit back and accept its destruction. And if more and more Arab countries seek its destruction, Israel will have to defend itself against more and more Arabs. It has proved itself capable of doing so in the past. Isn't the challenge, though, Alan, that this kind of hatred, which also extends to the United States, of course, can't be destroyed with bombs? Yes, it can. Um, hatred can be destroyed with bombs. Um, I don't care if people hate me. I just care that they don't have the capacity to destroy me. Uh, Germans hated the Jews, and it was destroyed by bombs. It's a tragic reality that force sometimes is morally necessary. There's an interesting exchange between Gandhi and Buber. Buber was a great Jewish Hasidic scholar and, and existential writer. And Gandhi wrote to Buber in the beginning of the Holocaust and said, why don't you do what I did? Lie down in front of the British. Sow passive disobedience and, and the Nazis will stop killing you. And I'm not quoting now, but essentially what Buber wrote back is, Gandhi, you schmuck, don't you realize you were facing the British, they're moral people. We're facing the Nazis, they're not moral. If we lie down, they'll just roll over us and kill us. Alan Dershowitz, you said that hatred can be destroyed by bombs, and you know that the more you bomb, the more hatred is created, but you mentioned that Israel can handle that. My question is, the population explosion in the Arab and Muslim world, Israel is surrounded mm -hmm. by a sea of Arabs and Muslims. It turns out today that the two um, most exaggerated weapons in the world are the two weapons the Arabs have, population and oil. Uh, great population growth weakens a country, doesn't strengthen a country, and uh, great oil reserves make a country lazy. Um, you know, they used to tell the joke, poor, poor Moses, if God had only told him to turn right instead of left, Israel would be sitting in the Persian Gulf. I'm glad that if there is a God, he gave Israel a barren land a desert land so that Israel would be encouraged to develop high technology and not dependent on oil. And I think the same thing is true with population. You don't win wars today by breeding more children. You win wars today by uh, serious devotion to science, technology, and economy. And Israel has done a first-rate job doing that, and it does not not have to fear the population bomb. The population bomb is a dud. If we accept your notion that you can militarily defeat hatred and that the population bomb is a dud, nonetheless, there is a motive to try to preempt this hatred, I would think. Sure. How can we preempt this hatred? You would think by offering peace. Um, Israel tried that. Um, it failed. Uh, you would think by offering land. Israel tried that. It failed. Everything should be tried before military action is taken. But we cannot take preemption or prevention off the table. It has to be made part of the armaments of democracy, particularly in its fight against terrorism. You cannot talk logically to Osama bin Laden. You cannot persuade him. You cannot engage in Gandhi-like moral tactics in relation to him. He is an evil man. 
and the only way to destroy Osama bin Laden is to kill him or to capture him, not to try to change him. And uh, democracies have to be willing to kill and capture. And we're trained to believe thou shalt not kill. But if we could preemptively target Osama bin Laden and kill him, and if we could have done that before 9-11, it would have been the most moral thing we could possibly do. And I would be happy to be the one to pull the trigger or to pull the switch, because I would never urge anything that I wouldn't personally be prepared to do. And if I could pull the trigger and kill Osama bin Laden, I would be proud to do it, and I would want it written on my tombstone. Well, on that stirring note, let me thank you for the interview, Alan Dershowitz. Well, thank you. This was very, very interesting for me, and I enjoyed it very much. You've been listening to Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard Law professor and author of Preemption, The Knife That Cuts Both Ways. I'm Jenny Atiyah, and if you'd like to make a comment, please go to our website at www.thoughtcast.org. You could take it from there. Mm -hmm.